Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Did You Do Your Homework? The pop culture podcast where we might be talking everything about anything, and where we assign homework and hopefully make doing that homework actually fun. Uh, I'm Pete Romberg, and joining me this week and every other week are... Comic maven, Martha Sullivan. Space Pathfinder, Kaylee Scouten. There, I came up with something. Hooray! <laughs> nice. So we're going to be talking tonight about uh, caring for or failing to care for the natural world. But before we do that, it's only fair that we begin, as we begin every podcast, with our pop culture credentials. Uh, this isn't the best thing that we've consumed recently, but it is simply the most recent thing that we've consumed. Um, so, Kaylee, we'll start with you. What is... The most recent piece of pop culture that you've been consuming. The most recent piece of pop culture that I've been consuming is a widely known television show that is currently on Netflix called Archer. Love Archer. Well, and it's airing on FX, right? Yes. Want to give us a rundown on the show or just (laughs) assume that we all know what it is? (laughs) Archer is about um, a group of... And I I used to watch it more religiously, and I've just been catching episodes as my husband has been watching them. Um, And it's it's the sort of quote-unquote leader of this spy group is Archer, Sterling Archer. And he's kind of not your best spy, but he gets the job done, so... He's kind of like if James Bond was actually held accountable for being as terrible of a person as he is. Yes. And, and was also an even worse person in all the Bondian ways. James Bond is a pretty terrible person. Yep. And Archer dials him up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And Martha, how about you? What is your most recent piece of pop culture? Uh, Well, first, this isn't my most recent, but I just got back, so I'm going to tell you about it anyway. I spent the day at C2E2, the Chicago Comics and Entertainment Expo, and it was amazing. It's my favorite convention. I love comics so much. Um, I got to meet a whole bunch of super awesome people like Kate Leth and Jen Bartel and Yuko Ota and Ananth Hirsch. Oh, I love them. And I tried to meet... Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, but their line was so long that it got capped. So I got very upset about that. Um, but no, it's super fun. I got, I spent a lot of money on enamel pins and I got this really awesome shirt that says dead men don't cat call, uh, which I'm wearing right now. And I like so much that I was thinking about throwing a photo of it up on the blog. Uh, but my actual pop culture credential for this week is a novel called spontaneous by Aaron Starmer. Uh, which I was reading on the train back from the con. Uh, It is a YA novel about a class of high school seniors who start spontaneously combusting uh, for reasons people can't uh, figure out. So the FBI gets called in, the town gets quarantined, uh, and it's told from the first person point of view of Mara, one of the uh, high school seniors in the class. Um, It is very funny. It is very heartbreaking. Uh, it's wonderful, and I highly recommend it to everybody. I'm about two-thirds of the way through that one. Cool. For myself, uh, like many other people, I was very excited when Kendrick Lamar dropped his third album last weekend. Uh, that album is called DAMN, or something like that. It's all caps and ends with a period. Um, 
And I've been listening to it basically nonstop since then, uh, with smatterings of other things in between. So, um, as is evident at this point, I listen to a lot of music, and that has been on heavy rotation recently for me. You should assign us more musical homework, Pete. You I, should. I should, but I feel like because I, I... <laughs> well, I don't listen. I don't listen to a lot of music, so frequently when we're thinking of topical stuff, it's just not part of my media repertoire. And it would be an interesting way to mix things up a little bit. For me, it's a case of the fish doesn't know what water is because it is just the medium in which the fish exists. Um, in the sense that oftentimes there might be music that I think might resonate well with a topic, but I don't even think about that because it's just some music that I'm listening to a lot. Um, Kendrick and, and some other artists are slightly different uh, assigning that um, uh, album for episode two, I think, uh, by Jimmy Lee Woods felt different, but a lot of the music I listen to I don't think of topically so much as sonically, which makes it hard to think about when we have great topics. Speaking of great topics, um, <laughs> uh, today... Should we get into it? Yeah, let's. Um, tonight, or today, we're going to be talking about caring or not caring for the natural world. Let's start with uh, let's start with Martha. What was your homework? Uh, sh sure. So for this week, I assigned you guys the first volume of Nausicaa of the Valley of Wind. I confess to you guys right now, I don't know that I'm pronouncing her name correctly uh, because I don't know what the two umlauts over an A does to that A. Uh, in Greek, uh, but it means this that you pronounce a... both letters, so it's not a diphthong, so you're doing it right. Oh, I'm, pr cool. I'm pretty sure you're doing it right. <laughs> So this is volume one in a four-volume series by Hayao Miyazaki, uh, which he wrote and drew in 1995. Uh, and he... No, that's that can't be right. Sorry, that's the collected edition, because it's definitely from the 80s. Um, he then adapted it into one of Studio Ghibli's first uh, feature-length films. It is a... Is it safe to call this one a dystopic story? It takes place way in the future after the world has been ravaged by war and industry. And it's about two competing, it's two warring empires and uh, the girl who is basically the chosen one to reset the balance uh, between uh, humanity and the forest and nature. Um, and also there are really, really giant bugs. I, I'd call it like, yeah, post-apocalyptic, if not dystopian. Okay, 1984 was the original that's release the date. No, that's the movie. Uh, <laughs> Sometime in the 80s. I was going to say, carry on. I can find this uh, this date. Where are you? 1982. Okay. 1982. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is, I mean, this is one of the prototypical uh, Studio Ghibli films. I think it sets the scene for a lot of the uh, themes and tropes that Miyazaki will carry into some of his, or to carry into later works. Um, he's real into industry versus nature and the impact of humanity on the earth and I thought that there was a higher chance that you guys might not have read this one, which was why I picked it for today. Um, that was a 100% chance. <laughs> um, 
I love Princess Mononoke, which I feel like is his more famous movie that grapples with the same issues. Um, I saw Nausicaa back in high school, and I remembered it was a girl who has a glider doing some things. Um, so it was it was really nice to to read this. Although I do have to confess that the entire time I was reading the first volume, I was thinking to myself, this looks so Miyazaki, I kind of just want to be watching it instead. It does read a little bit like a, um... Yeah. Like a storyboard. Storyboard. Also, I, I don't know if this is the case with what you were reading, but mine was black and white. Um, yes, and yeah. I, cool. Um, I know that, like, my vague memories of Girl on Glider um, from the, the movie is that it was very bold colors. And that was another reason I wanted to be watching it. Um, so I'll likely be re-watching that movie soon. I'm very glad you picked it because it felt very different than the movies Kaylee and I picked. And specifically, your, like, Nausicaa is a post-cataclysm. We've already screwed up the world. And now it's sort of the aftermath. And it's resetting that balance. Whereas I think both Kaylee's doesn't, idiocracy doesn't get far enough into the resetting of the balance side, like, we're deep in the world is screwed up side. Um, and, and Avatar is sort of the, we're beginning to screw up a world, or trying to, so it, it felt like a really nice triptych of homework assignments. Agreed. Um, yeah, idiocracy is sort of, and, and we'll get, I guess, well, no, we can get to it now. Idiocracy is sort of post screwing it up but not so irreparable as i feel the world is portrayed as in nausicaa i mean in nausicaa it's basically they don't talk about fixing it because they can't right um it it has been that way for too long it has gone on for too long it is so ingrained in the world that they are living with that it's just yeah this is a thousand thousands of miles of forest that is so toxic that we can't go in there and that's just how it is <laughs> and I, I was getting a very strong vibe that the the way nature was trying to fix it was by just getting rid of humans um which we'll get into as well yeah i don't know if it's so much about getting rid of humans like i don't know if it's that specific but it's almost like nature is on a purification cycle mm -hmm. so like things are getting soup, things are sifting the toxicity out in a way that is toxic to humans, but is ultimately purifying for the earth. Right. And yeah, the root the root cause of that is implied. They don't they don't get into it super specifically, but it is de heavily implied. I think that the root cause of the world being so toxic is industry and humanity and war and all of that sort of unnatural stuff late stage capitalism <laughs> it's so late that they don't even care about capitalism anymore <laughs> i had a similar experience as up where i had watched it in high school but all i remember is girl on the glider and the cute little fox critter. tito tito um, but I really enjoyed this manga a whole bunch, and I'm sad I haven't read it sooner. Like, I feel like it fills in a lot of the blanks that I was having with the movie. Like, I was like, oh man, I like this, but I need more of it. And, mm. well, here's more of it. And I feel like a lot happened. And there's a lot of different, um, 
I meant to start like snapping photos of certain comic cells because there were several that jumped out at me where it was just like, oh man, that's really poignant in today's day and age. Well, it's very Game of Thrones. How so? Um, well, you have it gets more into it in um, the further volumes. You're just sort of introduced to that in this one. Um, but the whole deal with Kushana and her brothers and the Vi Emperor, it's all, it's a very Lannister political mm. family drama happening. Mm. Um, this the first volume I feel is a lot of setting up like how did we get here? Where are we? Who are the players? Okay. And then you get more of the sort of full you get more into the the Tormikian Empire, which is the main um you know, Tormikia, yeah, Tormikia and Dorak are the two main political powers at play. And Tormikia, it's it's a, a whole family of terrible brothers and one super awesome sister and everyone vying for power. Okay. Which I found interesting, like speaking, since you mentioned Game of Thrones, it's, I felt like there were several instances where like, just like five people got blasted in the face with guns, and I'm just like, "Whoa, I was not expecting that." Like, <laughs> civilization is on the brink of like absolute destruction, and you're just like killing people. Yeah, there is a bit of there is a bit of fatalism to it. Sort of like, well, we're all boned anyway, so let's like get what we can while we can do it. Yeah. Which I think plays into the there's no fixing this world. Like anything, there's there's no caring for this world. Which I think is one of your bigger discussion questions, Pete. Like how how much of environmental engineering are we sort of obligated to do? And and in the world of Nausicaa, the answer is none. Because guess what? <laughs> <You can't. laughs> right. Well, and at that point, nature is engineering everything all on its own uh, without us. Right. Speaking of fatalism... Uh, Kaylee, Idiocracy. Yes, I picked Idiocracy for this week, which is directed by Mike Judge, who you may know from South Park. No, I think he's Office no, Space. No, I'm sorry, King of the Hill. Why did I think South Park? I'm sorry, you guys. Yes, King of the Hill, Beavis and Butthead, all of that fun stuff, Office Space. Um, I was going to say, I got the publication date of my book wrong like three times, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and what this movie is about is a, I think he's a corporal for the army, gets himself put into a special program where he is frozen for a very long time, along with, uh, Maya Rudolph, who plays Rita, who sort of accidentally gets, not accidentally, but she gets, she's the female counterpart to him, and they get frozen in time. You're not frozen in time. I guess frozen and then sent to the future, but not really sent to the future because they're just frozen in the machine. And they get they both... forgotten about. Yes. I mean, they get they're forgot... only supposed to be frozen for a year and then suddenly it's it's uh, 500. Yeah, it's Fry and Futurama. Yes. yes, 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 yes. It is very Futurama. Um, and I, Kaylee, I don't remember if you mentioned this, but the male lead is played by Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson, yes. And the world has gone to shit because it has become very anti-intellectual. Terry Crews is President Comancho and he 
it's basically everybody at this point is just trying to get by and survive. But well, I, I feel like it's important to mention that the reason that everyone is anti-intellectual is because only dumb people are reproducing and they're reproducing a lot. Yes. Which, which ended up being one of my... I remember watching this movie when I was maybe a freshman or sophomore in college and mm -hmm. enjoying it quite a bit. And I haven't seen it since then, and so I can't tell if the movie has aged poorly or if I have aged out of the movie. Okay. Yeah, like that that angle of it of like, dumb people have more sex and have more babies and therefore we get dumber over time is really problematic and also not scientifically sound and quickly goes down the eugenics road, which like this movie doesn't, but... But it could. But it could. And as I was watching it, I just kept having that, like, back of my mind tickle of, like, yeah, I, like, if I buy into, if I buy into this premise, it all flows naturally from there. But yikes, that's a premise to buy into. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and this movie was from, I think, 2003, 2005? Um, 2000, 2000, it's 2003, I think. Okay, so... Or am I wrong about that, too? <laughs> <laughs> it's a couple years off, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, like, so so it was, a, like, you know, roughly 15 years ago. On the one hand, not that long ago. On the other hand, kind of a really long time ago. We're dropping the R word, and, the and like, you know, we're calling people retards, and we're calling people fags like crazy in this movie. And part of that is the joke, and part of it is, like, 2003, people just did that. Well, I do think that part of the language thing is supposed to be like these are these are terms that uneducated people use because the conceit of the movie is that everyone is uneducated. Uned right. So I don't think that I mean, I don't disagree with you, but I also don't think that their use of that language was meant to be anything other than this is not something that intelligent, articulate people do totally agree but i also don't think that if you were to do this movie now you would do that no like oh, I, I think I you'd did... come up with different slurs um well i had never seen this movie before i did not care for it and so pete i i think that i and i because i've never seen it before i don't know how i would have felt about it as a younger person but maybe i am just too old for it like maybe i have aged out of this humor i don't know i feel like it does a lot of the same things that wally does only wally is so good yeah and it's funny because like i assigned this one and then i think like right after i signed it i was like oh wally wally would have been an excellent choice i'm, I'm actually glad you assigned this one so that we can talk about it because we would True. never have brought this up if, if you had assigned Wally. Uh, but we can well, all talk about Wally all, too. We've all seen Wally, so we can still talk about it. Totally. True. But yeah, it, it's, it has the same sort of like no one was paying attention and we hoarded out the Earth. Um, I mean, Wally has the we went to space and got terrible angle, but it's still the we got lazy in space. So I feel like there's a lot of the same themes happening only wally is like sensitive and intelligent in a way that this movie just wasn't yes like i mean one of them is is created by 
Pixar, Disney Pixar? Pixar. Pixar, and the other is created by the guy who did Beavis and Butthead. So it's yeah, like, so it, I mean, like... <laughs> right, it's exactly what you'd expect if, the, if those two companies did the movie with the same thing. Speaking specifically about the theme of caring for the natural environment, the one thing that this movie had that Wally doesn't, so so both this and Wally had the like, we have a massive trash issue because we got stupid and couldn't figure out how to deal with trash. Um, but this movie also has its one to me still saving grace, which is that we got so stupid that we couldn't even water plants correctly. Um, yeah. Because, you know, Brondo has electrolytes, which are what plants crave. It is what plants crave. <laughs> um, and, and that was really funny. I, I, I think that still holds up. And also leads to a, a, another topic we'll get into later, which is, like, ignorance and trying to care for the natural world. Like, they're trying to grow crops. They're just really stupid. Well, it's ignorance. It's ignorance fostered by capitalism and consumerism because it's a it's a myth created by Brondo to sell their product. De- definitely, but they're all too stupid to know any better, um, and the outcome is the same. Right. I just I think that as we as we kind of progress through our homework, I think the um, capitalism and consumer culture as being the places where apathy like it's consumer culture in exchange for caring for the natural world i think is a common Mm. thing that we see across all of these uh all of the media completely agree and if no uh, arguments that's a perfect segue (laughs) to go into avatar it really is (laughs) i did not plan it that way if you keep setting them up i'll keep hitting them down or however that saying goes um so talk to me about the fact that you have never seen this movie before. Yeah, so I assigned it because I had never seen it before. Um, I cannot see 3D movies. Um, I'm blind in one eye, which means that right. like 3D movies, to me, just look a little bit dark versions of 2D movies. Um, so I, I can pay the extra $3 or whatever to get the 3D glasses and then sit in a slightly darker, otherwise identical experience for extra money. Um, so I don't like doing that. And that's probably one reason why I never saw it in theaters, because it was like the CGI 3D spectacle. Seeing it now, a lot of the CGI still holds up. Like, you can tell that this was like 2009. So this is James Cameron's 2009 furry cat people uh, avatar, which he's apparently <laughs> going to make 5,000 sequels to, um, or at least he threatens to. Yeah, it took him, like, 12 years to make the first one, so... Right. So, you can tell that it was top-of-the-line CGI in 2009. 2017, a lot of it still holds up really well. I was kind of happily surprised about that. Um, Also, there were no obvious CGI shots of, like, Captain America throwing his shield at the screen, and you're supposed to go, ooh, uh, in the theater because you've got the glasses on. There were none of those, which I hate, and I was really glad to see none of that. Um, and also there, like, I could just tell that, like, in 3D, a lot of that movie would probably be just gorgeous. Technical aspects of it aside, it's a problematic movie, um, but I... I was gonna say, speaking of problematic (laughs) films... Um, but I feel like they came to it honestly, in the sense that I don't think they sat down and said, let's remake Pocahontas, but in space... I think they sat down and said, 
I have this cool idea. What if we tell an anti-imperialism story where aliens invade a planet and take its resources, but it's the humans who are the aliens? And it's like, ooh, that's a cool sci-fi idea. Nice twist. Um, and then step by step by step, it's like, oh, we just remade Dances with Wolves. <laughs> but a little bit racist. Uh, or more racist. I'm 100% certain that somebody was like, it can't be racist because they're aliens. Yep. And then nobody said, oh, but wait, we're coding them as native. And then all of the aliens are played by black people. And then Giovanni Rabisi calls them blue monkeys. Like, no one at any point had maybe an inkling that this was not a good idea. My one caveat is that some of the Navi were played by actual uh, American Indians. Uh, Wes Studi plays their chief. Okay. Doesn't make but it I any think better. That still proves my point. Yep. Yep. <laughs> because then otherwise we have a cast full of white people and a very problematic white savior narrative mm -hmm. where the generic white guy action hero can Navi better than the actual Navi. Yeah, that's one of those tropes that I'm really, like, over. Well, and then there's also some really weird, like, ableism stuff going on. I don't know. Also, <laughs> that, that, gets, that gets too far away from our original topic, but... <laughs> well, speaking of far away from our original topic, the Navi... I don't know if you guys... Well, you guys must have had to. The closed caption font for the Navi was papyrus. The, the yeah. movie poster font was papyrus. I mean, because uh, it's exotic. It's papyrus. <laughs> it's cheap exotic. So, Pete, you mentioned to me before we started recording that you ha you hadn't seen the movie before. And now having seen it, you weren't sure that it fit our theme as well as you thought that it did. Right. So I, I picked the theme for this week and I picked this movie based on that theme. Um, partly because I had never seen it, so I'm like, hey, good excuse to watch this movie I should have seen, uh, eight years ago. Um, but I thought it was gonna lean a lot harder in the actual environmentalism side of it. Um, what I got from it instead, I, I actually am glad that I chose it, even though I, it didn't fit the theme as well as I thought it would. Um, so this is entirely an expectations versus reality critique, rather than an actual like, a, a proper critique, as it were. But I thought that this was an absolute anti-imperialism or anti-colonialism film influenced entirely by the Iraq War. I mean, like, you know, coded Americans are going invading this, uh, you know, quote-unquote exotic place to steal basically oil. And it, and the, the eco-narrative, like, the, the environmentalism message was sort of a constant part of the background. And I liked it in the sense that it was never, it was mentioned a lot of like, oh, we screwed up Earth, you know, when when uh, white hero dude face um, is like talking Sam to Sam Worthington. There we go, him. Nowadays he'd be played by um, Charlie Hunnam, but back in 2009, Sam Worthington fills the role of generic white guy pretty well. Um, they tried so hard to make him a thing and they just couldn't do it. But... When he's talking to the Navi tree, he has a line about like, oh, we screwed up Earth, we'll screw up here too. So it's it's present in a big way. 
and just the way of life of the Navi and what the humans are doing is all clearly coded environmentally, but it's doing it in sort of a second or third tier background way, which I think I liked more than if it was the primary message, because the primary message is like anti-imperialism, and the assumed... And so that's that's what you get hit over the head with, because that's what you need to, like, wake up about. Whereas the environmentalism side is, to me, kind of assumed, which was nice. Well, yeah, I think that there's something to the fact that in an anti... Like, a, um, how can I say this the way that I want to? Sort of an assumed aspect of colonialism is this ecological destruction. Hmm. Like, like the, the two are part and parcel. Right. Yeah. And actually, I, I pulled this from the TV Tropes entry. Uh, Avatar features very heavily on the TV Tropes global warning page. Um, and they had this little brief thing, which I it was something in the extended version of the movie, which I did not watch because this movie is unconscionably long already. Jeez, it's, it's three hours in the, in the theatrical cut. It's insane. Yeah. Uh, Though axed from the theatrical version in James Cameron's Avatar, the Earth has been doomed to die from the destruction of its ecosystems, in part to humans' role of contributing to global warming and deforestation. With the Earth no longer a suitable homeworld, this is what influenced the RDA to evacuate humans into space colonization and eventually settling on Pandora. The theatrical version, I think, implies not that we are trying to settle Pandora, but that we are just trying to harvest it. Yes. So I'm wondering, do you guys think that that bit should have been kept? Like, do, does the message lose something without that uh, sort of plot thread specified? Did we need that for the for the movie? Or is it not actually, if the movie is essentially an anti-imperial na- narrative, is that little detail not really necessary? I don't know if it's necessary, because I feel like, I mean, we're only on Earth for like maybe what, five minutes during flashbacks a flashback i mean i think i think it changes what the movie's about because right now it's it's about rolling into somewhere and stealing the resources it's not about colonizing the planet because we stole we used up all of our resources so now it's time to go find somebody else's resources and steal those instead yeah it wouldn't even it wouldn't even be about taking their resources it would be about taking their home right now it's it's about the the destruction of somebody else's home for capitalistic gains rather than um you know christopher columbus story they are way more hilariously as as you write into the notes martha hilariously caricatured bad guys if they're just there to take the oil than if they're trying to basically terraform the planet to become a new earth um it's evil either way but if you're like earth is dead we have nowhere else to go then you're a little bit more like shades of gray whereas if it's just i don't know we need some space oil uh this place has space oil let's take their space oil um then you're in hardcore hilarious movie villain territory i just Giovanni Rabisi refers to the unobtainium as cheddar at one point. <laughs> yes, he does. Like, 
And I was just like, I can't. I can't take you seriously. I just, I cannot do it. The, the whole movie, I was comparing it in my head to Aliens, uh, also by James Cameron, because if anyone needs to do future military tech in movies, just give that to James Cameron and he'll do it great. Um, and ditto with if you need to do evil corporate middle management stooge. Um, but the bad guy in Aliens was way more interesting and nuanced than Giovanni, I don't know his last name, um, Rabisi? Rabisi. Rabisi. Yes. Who, who is interesting because he was conflicted, but as soon, the very first scene, he's like putting a golf ball in the middle of like this command center. I'm like, oh, it's the exact same guy from Aliens. Cool. I was going to say, conflicted how? At the end, he's like, maybe we shouldn't genocide the Navi. Um, and cigar chomping military dude is like, nope, we're going to genocide everything. Oh, because he was like, oh crap, I'm going to die. And also like bad for shareholders if we're genociding things. Because the root of all economic or all ecological destruction is capitalism. Yep. Yeah, capitalism. <laughs> which, which leads me into a, uh, sort of a sidebar here, which is all three of our topics, all three of our homeworks had in some way, state, or form some sort of evil megacore or just the role of corporations and capitalism as this driving force that either is causing or has caused this ecological destruction. So do you think that this is a, first off, like, you know, what, almost every other example I can think of is sort of going to be based on, on this sort of driving point for a topic like um, caring for the natural world, any sort of ecological disaster often is going to hinge on this. Um, do you think that this is like a, a proper reflection of reality or is it more an easy script writing cl uh, crutch? Um, or is there something else going on here? I guess, why do we think that this is the driving narrative of all of these ecologically themed movies is that capitalism and, and corporations are the root cause of the destruction? Because I think that's true to life. I mean, our it, it's industry. Um, I mean, to a lesser extent, you could blame it on scientific progress, but scientific progress is usually sort of hand in hand with industry. So the things that are destroying our world in the re in reality are all driven by profit. Am I wrong? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I I'm in agreement. I'm I'm sort of. Yeah, no, it's it's oil consumption. It's using fossil fuels. It's, you know, disregard for water purity because our factories are on rivers and it's more financially sound to, to keep them there than to figure out how to operate our industry cleanly. Short-term short profits over everything else. I mean, the trend now is towards clean energy and... Um, businesses running green, but a lot of places can't afford to do it because it's expensive and it's a lot of work. Um, and when you're talking about a business, you know, the uh, a business is a business. It, and I'm not advocating this. I want to be clear. I'm not in favor of the destruction <laughs> of our earth um, in order for corporations and businesses to profit. But I'm saying that you know, that that's kind of how we got to to where we are right now. 
um, is, you know, progress for economic gain at the end of the day. <laughs> How about this? Are there any any sources we can think of off, off the top of our heads where this isn't the case, where or or that specifically inverts this? And I don't know if there is. Uh, let's see what I, what do I have in the the show notes. The first like three ideas I had were all no, that's capitalism. No, that is too. Hmm. Okay, so this is okay. So bear with me for a sec, guys. Okay. Pokemon the movie two thousand. <laughs> okay. Oh, strapping in on this with... one. <laughs> okay. So first of all, I unironically love this movie. I'm just going to put that on the table so you all know where I'm coming from. I need to rewatch it. Uh, but this movie is about a collector who does not collect for economic gain. He just collects for the sake of having things. So he want, he goes out to collect the three elemental birds from the original games, uh, which are fire, ice, and lightning-themed um, and in doing so, causes this like natural cataclysm because by having all the birds in one place, nature becomes out of balance, which is not something he does for industry, but because he is selfish and like an obsessive collector. Ditto Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, in which depending on which game you're playing, the villain team either wants to turn the world into like a desert or into a vast ocean. The reasons for which I don't totally remember, but it's not capitalistic because I think that that would actually be too complex for a Pokemon game. <laughs> I think it's just for reasons, capital R. <laughs> for magic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Those two sound more like an inversion, or at least sidestepping this, than the movie you mentioned. Because even though he's not doing it for, like, his own financial gain, it still feels within the e like within a capitalistic ethos, if that makes sense. Yes. Whereas, like, the team, evil team Ruby and evil team Sapphire, <laughs> being like, hey, I want to make the world an ocean because I love swimming... Um, I was gonna say I don't. I almost don't know if they count because they like don't have reasons. <laughs> but but at least their reasons aren't shareholder value. True. Um. Otherwise, I think. Otherwise, I think every other example we have on this list is economic based in some way. So what? Do, what I mean, what do we think about that? That apparently, the the natural. Um, consequence to progress is ecological destruction. I would phrase it differently. Um, okay. I don't think that it's progress. I think that it is capitalism and specifically corporate, the corporate capitalism that we've seen in the last gonna ballpark 40 to 50 years. Um, because that's where almost all of our sources are coming from that. I think Godzilla might be the only one. Godzilla is actually a case where it's not capitalism so much as the military-industrial complex. Progress. 
Right. So that's We're progress. Still talking about- right. So 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 that's progress. But I feel like a lot of the modern ones, um, dating back the last specifically, you know, ballparking into thirty years, are specifically not just like because Godzilla is like the military dropped some nukes. And now these iguanas are 50 feet tall and breathing like radioactive fire. So I guess, I guess what I'm asking is what do we think about the idea? Cause our, our, our pop culture landscape is informed by what is happening in the real world. So what do we think about this idea that cause the, the, the media that we're talking about is reflecting the idea that you can't have, corporate success without ecological damage. Right. I I think it comes down to what do we prioritize as a society, right? Like right now our society prioritizes short-term shareholder value increases to the point where not only is that culturally a thing, but that is often legally the only thing that corporations need to be concerned about. And when that is your driving motive then yeah it doesn't matter if you're just uh watering the fields with brondo because it's got electrolytes um because that means that you're selling a lot more brondo so it's it's helping the stock value of brondo and it's helping your shareholders um so it i i I think that it's an accurate reflection of where we are culturally right now but i don't want to be as pessimistic as i probably sound well i think it's fair to say that the media that we are talking about is critical of this idea like none of these none of these things are showing it as a good thing yeah yes i can't even think of a situation where there is a media that portrays it as a good thing like oh well we may have destroyed the ozone layer but at least we invented this sweet car yeah yeah maybe? i can't either maybe because well, maybe the happening say, probably <laughs> we should kill all the plants before they kill us <laughs> except <laughs> no the happening was because of bees pete i i've never seen the happening i thought no i thought it was the plants were killing us i thought the bees was the wicker man well, no, the bees all disappeared, and then the plants got mad at us for polluting the earth and making the bees disappear, that they all started killing people. <laughs> it's the dumbest movie ever. Don't ever watch it. The moral I'm reading here is that we should have killed all the plants first. Did I put the day after tomorrow on this uh, list? No, but I did. Oh, good. An, an equally I knew stupid somebody movie. did. Outrun the weather. Well, it, that's what made me think of it. It's like the happening is about outrunning the trees. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and day after tomorrow is about outrunning the weather. <laughs> Speaking about outrunning trees, um, yes. this is a good segue into uh, you have the two towers on here. Um, I do. So let's talk a little bit about that because I, I think that that fits in with Avatar in... A common trope when it comes down to moralizing stories of, like, the failures for not caring for the natural world are that Mother Nature will fight back. Um, and, and we also have Swamp Thing on this list as well. Um, so I think that we have a, a fairly deep 
selection of not just humans doing bad thing to nature, but nature then fighting back. So first, I thought it was insulting that it took Pandora so long to get off her uh, nature butt and actually do something. It took a white man to tell the planet how to fight back. Especially because they spend so long in that movie telling me how dangerous Pandora is to people. It's like, hmm, doesn't seem like it. But anyway, what it made Mm -hmm. me think of was Saruman, like, destroying... What, what what forest are they in? Does it matter? Fangorn. Yeah, destroying Fangorn to build his creepy Urukai and create like all the mines and stuff. And then in the two towers, the Ents, which are giant tree people, just tear it all down. And it's my favorite scene in the movies, actually. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very definite nature bites back moment. Um, and Swamp Thing is a very near and dear to my heart book because it is both a nature parable and also a body horror book. And I love <laughs> me some good body horror. And later on you get some um, deep psychedelia in it too. In the Alan Moore version. Yes. yes. But I also want to mention that the Scott Snyder new 52 version is quite good. Um, a lot of the DC new 52 books don't get a whole uh, lot of not. credit. Well, yeah, but that one is worth talking about. The central conceit behind the Swamp Thing is that he is uh, an avatar of what DC, the DCU calls the green, which is basically the natural world. Uh, his counterpart is Animal Man, who's the avatar of the red, which is like animals and people. Okay. And then the third force, which um, Alan Moore doesn't super get into, but Scott Snyder does, is the black which is death that like undead and that's like the black lantern stuff yeah but it's also um like a necessary part of the balance like swamp thing's whole deal is maintaining the balance between nature animal life and death so when one of those things gets out of balance uh he has to roll in and correct it okay uh but he's made of plants and he can travel to anything that is a plant. And frequently in his books, he will manifest somewhere with like a very large exploding vine. Um, he lives in a swamp and it's all very, it's all very nature will hurt you if you don't, uh, if you don't behave. And I, I just think it's, it's neat that we have this like undercurrent of capitalism, bad destroying nature, but also nature, you know, might fight back. Yeah. Whether that be through swamp people or ants or plants releasing spores. Um, Even in its own way, the day after tomorrow is kind of nature fighting back, not in an active way, but in a like, humanity, you screwed up. Now you have to outrun glaciers because that's how those work. Um, but, But it's still a sort of like natural consequences of humanity's overreach speaking of overreach unless we want to talk more about swamp thing i can always talk about swamp thing. <laughs> right 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 <laughs> uh, and ditto with the ends um but one one thought i had and we talked about this a little bit before is how active a role humans should be playing in the caring of nature so this the title of this episode is caring or not for the natural world 
And that could be something passive, such as, um, you know, putting limitations on pollutants into a stream. That would be caring for the natural world to ensure it's not polluted. Um, but it could also be active in the sense that, um, you know, we could be attempting to terraform an ecosystem in some way. Um, the specific example I'm going to bring up here is from Dune, where Dune is set on the desert world of Arrakis. And there's a very mild, like, tertiary or lower plotline where the native people are attempting a multi-generational, very slow terraforming of, of the desert planet into a verdant, life-giving planet. Um, that's something that's viewed very positively by everyone involved. Um, the only critiques leveled are that it's taking too long. But on the other hand, that is def like, is that a case of caring for the natural world if it's a case of humanity trying to completely reshape this planet? Um, what will happen to the little Muad'Dib mice or to the, to the great sandworms, you know, if the whole planet becomes green? So um, generally in, in sci-fi and in, in movies, terraforming is seen as always a positive, always a good. Um, and in I, I want to leave aside dead planet, quote-unquote dead planets like Mars where, like, there's no ecosystem to destroy, but in sort of sci-fi materials, like, is terraforming good if it's a planet that has an ecosystem that's just bad for humans? Well, the later books of the Dune series actually kind of get into that, because when the Fremen are terraforming Dune, no one is thinking about the fact that the spice comes from the sandworms. Mm -hmm. So by the time the books get late enough that they have actually started terraforming it in great enough quantities that the sandworms are dying... And that would be like God Emperor? I... Yeah, like God Emperor, God Emperor, Chapter House, like the the later terrible books. Um <laughs> But then people, I, I don't remember how it exactly plays out, but people do start realizing, because no one knows where the spice comes from. Like, nobody knows that it comes, except for the Fremen. Um, but all the people who are profiting off of it in the wider galaxy, nobody knows that it comes from the worms running into water and then basically exploding. So as Dune, as Arrakis starts to get terraformed, the worms start dying and the spice starts, you know, this, this thing that the universe runs on starts disappearing. Um, so I think that it, it does in later books get into the fact that, you know, temp tampering with this planet is not actually a good thing. Well, and it has deeply important, but also unexpected consequences. I know that you're right. It's just been so long since I've read those books that I, I couldn't tell you what those were. I read Dune last year, reread Dune last year, and I haven't picked up another Dune book in 15, 20 years. So, yeah. I recommend skipping Dune Messiah and just reading Children of Dune and then just stopping. Mm. <laughs> or just watch the sci-fi miniseries. Those are great. All I was going to say about vis-a-vis um, -vis caring for the natural world, I almost feel like at a certain point not caring for the natural world necessitates a hands-on approach where like, we, if, if we have not cared for it to such an extent that the only way to fix it is either to go the Nausicaa route where the Earth just resets... <laughs> 
like where we just take everything to the brink and you know acquiesce to our inevitable extinction the the cockroaches will survive yeah or we reverse engineer what we have caused i mean i think the earth has been around for a long time it will be around for a long time after we're gone but in terms of maintaining a habitat that is conducive to our existing um if if we've if we've screwed things up to a certain extent we can't have a hands-off approach I don't have anything to. I don't have any media to support that. It's more just Martha's editorial. Sure, totally. <laughs> the 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 thing that got me thinking about this was um, idiocracy, and the idea of like, you, you know, as I mentioned before, like we're watering plants with Brondo. What like a because the corporation, you know, lied to us and told us that that's what plants crave, but also because the people were too dumb to know any better. But that's do you like at, at the root of that the reason why we're doing this bad thing is ignorance um whether it's intentional ignorance like we were lied to or whether it's unintentional ignorance like we just don't know there especially in the past 100 150 years there's a lot of instances you can point to where humans thought they were doing the right thing for caring for the natural world and then 30 years later realized we don't know what we're doing um, turns out nature does a better job at caring for itself than we do. Um, so increasingly it's, it, it's an increasing sort of hands-off approach, I think, is the goal in a lot of ecological management. And that sometimes comes up against what we see in media portrayals. Um, but also, Martha, like what you were saying, if we've screwed things up to a certain enough point, that sort of puts it on us to fix it. Or die. Yeah. I mean, we could let the earth fix itself, but then we're sort of committing to a, our personal situation won't be improved. Right. So, so the one other thing I've been thinking about with regards to this topic is that some media that deal with this issue of like the ecology, caring for the natural world, absolutely, that is the capital M message. And they're going to hit you over the head with it with a hammer. Um, Fern Gully is a phenomenal movie from the 90s that is 100% that sort of thing. Um, same with Princess Mononoke in a way that I think is different than Nausicaa. Um, other times it's more of an undercurrent and then sometimes it's played as a joke. Um, the example here is Blinky, the three-eye fish from The Simpsons, uh, who has three <laughs> eyes because he lives in the, in the highly polluted, uh, pond next to the power plant. Um, and he's just a visual sight gag, but also, like, that's a pretty morbid sight gag for all the comedy it is. Um, and it has sort of an implied understanding. Do you think that one of those is better than the other? Like, do you... Sometimes I get, like, a gut reaction against something when it's being too preachy. Do you think that the, like, the humorous wink-nod route is better for this sort of topic, or, or where it's just sort of an implied understanding that we are all, all on the same page, or where it's better if you're getting hit over the head with the fact that this is a problem that needs solving, all capital letters. I, I guess the question is, in terms of efficacy of solutions, is there a good way to present this in media? Um, I sort of feel like we've moved past the point of where 
subtlety is okay. And I feel like we're kind of at this point where we sort of need to be more direct hmm. with what our message is to the natural world. Because, like, I'm trying to think of, like, nowadays. Like, I don't necessarily know if Blinky would have, would come, well, um. What do you mean move, like? Like, I feel like we all need to be more aware of this. I mean, like, I know, I understand that we're all aware of where we're at in the world right now in terms of the health or lack of health that our natural environment has. And I feel like with the case of Blinky, it's like, okay, well, Blinky's in the Simpsons. That's their world, you know. That's not our world, sort of, if that makes sense. Are, are you sort of coming from the point of everyone knows that this matters, but we need the klaxon sirens going off to be like, yo, fix this now? Yeah, a little bit. At least that's how I feel about it. Because I'm sort of at this point where it's just like, no, you know, we need to support the EPA. We need to support measurements that are going to help get our world back to a better place. And I feel like we're slowly moving away from that again. Hmm. Um, which to me is very distressing. I guess I would argue that that's not really the job of the media that we're talking about. Like that's a, that's a news and informational awareness issue. And while, while media can be used to draw our attention to certain things, and to be a call to action, I'm not really looking to Princess Mononoke to give me actual data on the world that we live in. Sure. That's all the time we have for this week's episode. Kaylee, what is our topic for next episode? Our topic for next episode is Strange Bedfellows. Ooh, intriguing. I will be assigning The Man from Uncle, a 2015 action adventure flick starring uh, Henry Cavill and Arnie Hammer. And Kaylee, why don't, real fast, why don't you give us a quick definition of what we're talking about when we say Strange Bedfellows? Okay, so what we are talking about when I, when we are talking about Strange Bedfellows is sort of those unexpected friendships, those um, take person from side A and person from side B that magically become not friends overnight, but they become sort of have an understanding of where the other person sits. All right. Martha, what are you assigning for Strange Bedfellows? Uh, I am assigning the graphic novel Anya's Ghost by the author Vera, that's V as in Victor, E-R-A, Broskol, B as in boy, R-O-S-G-O-L. Uh, this is a graphic novel published it by First Second in 2011. It has won several awards. It is lovely. It's about a girl who's walking home from school one day, hears a suspicious noise in a well, goes over and finds herself with a new ghostly attache and has to deal with the, uh, the repercussions of having a ghost friend. That's amazing. <laughs> and A plus for using the word attaché vis-a-vis ghost I don't friends. know that I used it correctly, but I'm sticking with it. Do it. 
All right, and I'm assigning the 1990 novel Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, uh, titans in their field. I love you so much, Pete. This book is amazing. It, this book is phenomenal. <laughs> um, it tells the story of the end of the world. There we go. That's it. Well, as usual, we'll be reconvening in two weeks, which is going to give you plenty of time to do your homework. As always, the topic and the homework assignments can be found at our website, homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, you can find our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere fine podcasts are found. As said above, uh, take a look at homeworkpodcast.com. That is our home on the web. Although you can also find us on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast and on Facebook if you just search Facebook for Did You Do Your Homework? We'll happily respond to any messages you send over those uh, mediums. Um, and if you send us a message, we'll read it on air as well if you so desire. Guys, review us on iTunes. Definitely, yeah. I know we have a handful of them, but we don't have enough for them to show up on the page yet. If you are listening to us, please take 30 seconds, go write us a review, give us a rating. We will appreciate it deeply. More people will find our podcast. And yeah, it, it is just beneficial all over for you to take the time to do that for us. And from there, we can start monetizing step one of our phase of becoming a global capitalist corp and ruining the planet. <laughs> I would sell out. In a heartbeat, given the opportunity. <laughs> Brondo, we are taking that thing that corporations give you for money. Uh, <laughs> we will take Brondo's money. Um, Dawa plans, great. Yes. Speaking of, uh, if you have questions, comments, ideas for future show episodes, idea for future homework um, examples, uh, or you just want to drop us a line, you can Twitter us, you can Facebook us, or you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, you can also reach out to each of us individually. Kaylee, where can we find you online? You can find me on Instagram at Tricky Lemon. All right. And Martha, how about you? You can find me pretty much everywhere at Magical Martha. I, I am mostly on the Twitters. Um, I also spend some time on Instagram. All right, and you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O 3000. We will talk to you in two weeks, and until then, have fun doing your homework. Class dismissed. Pete, before we Class dismiss. not dismissed. Sit back down. <laughs> Don't pack up your book bags. Uh, first of all, just real fast, I want to I thank Pete for being the one who produces and edits our episodes every week. Um, it's, I'm sure, a lot of work that I don't do, so that's awesome. Um, Thank you. Also, get your brother, your famous brother, to give our show a plug. I guess we didn't need to keep this in the recording, but it... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I listened to his stuff on SoundCloud, and first of all, it's awesome. And second of all, he has way more listeners than we do. <laughs> but anyway... Tell Knox Fortune to give us a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And at that point, class is dismissed. Bye.